Well, I just finished my last Herceptin treatment after a long year of them, and I gotta say, I've got mixed emotions about it because uh, as arduous as it's all been, um, this place, Princess Margaret Cancer Center, is an incredible temple of healing, and uh, I'm gonna miss all the angels uh, that work here, but uh, in the meantime, I'm gonna celebrate. That's fashion journalist Jeannie Becker in a video she posted on her Instagram feed two weeks ago, ringing the bell at the hospital in Toronto where she had her last infusion of the cancer drug Herceptin. And while some people prefer to keep the details of an illness private, after her diagnosis last year, Becker has shared pictures and video at every step of her cancer journey for her tens of thousands of social media followers. And even while she admits the whole ringing the bell thing was kind of hokey, she did want to show people this important milestone because so many of her followers are living with the disease or know somebody who is. Not all of them had happy endings. A lot of people started to share their personal stories of uh, whether it was their journey or their, their wives or their sisters or their mothers. But all of them were really giving me that whole, you know, cheerleader boost. I'm Ellen Besner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Tuesday, June the 22nd, 2023. Welcome to the CJN Daily, a podcast of the Canadian Jewish News, sponsored by Metropia. Becker's long and successful career actually started out in Toronto's Bathurst Manor neighborhood. She's the daughter of two Holocaust survivors, and she credits her late mother, Branya for some of her early fashion sense. Branya sewed all their clothes in the latest styles. Becker started out as a child actor. She later trained in Paris to be a mime. But her big break came in the early 1980s in Toronto on City TV, including on Much Music. And her fashion television show made her an international celebrity. It aired for 27 years. And it took viewers behind the scenes to the runways of New York and Paris and Fashion Week, Becker interviewed everybody from Carl Lagerfeld to Naomi Campbell, Valentino, and Anna Wintour. Then, with a handful of books under her belt, her own clothing lines, a podcast, a weekly show on the Shopping Channel, and the Order of Canada, Becker was still running full tilt and preparing to celebrate her 70th birthday. Then, a routine mammogram changed everything. Becker turned her own cancer story into a public conversation, even the scary parts, including showing her in the hospital and her exhaustion when she wore a special cooling cap on her head and, yes, her hair loss, too. And through it all, her fans admired how somebody who's made an entire career focusing on appearance could be in a blue hospital gown and still look fabulous. Now she's feeling better, although still tired at times, and her medical odyssey isn't finished. Doctors have to keep a close eye on her heart for dangerous side effects. We caught up with Becker at her cottage in Warkworth, Ontario. It's near London, where she shares it with her partner, Ian, and their dogs. Oh, Ellen, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, it's, it's great to have you. I know the CJN has covered your career for many years, but I've never had the pleasure. Uh, and we're speaking because uh, just recently, maybe a few days ago, you rang the bell at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center and posted the whole video on your last treatment um, for last infusion, I guess. Uh, and so I wanted to congratulate you on that and also talk a little bit about what that was like. So can we start off with that? Okay, absolutely. Yeah, I'm still on a high from that and uh, feeling really good and positive as I have actually been through this whole cancer journey. Uh, 
was diagnosed almost exactly a year ago from from you know where I am today, and it was like the biggest shock of all because you know my mother never had breast cancer, my sister didn't have breast cancer. I well I don't know because I had a lot of uh, relatives perish in the Holocaust, so I never knew my grandmothers and if they ever would have had breast cancer or any of my aunts really. However, um, I've learned now that anyone can get breast cancer. Only you know maybe something like 15% of people that get breast cancer have a familial history of it. So really, you know, you've just got to be on your toes and be looking out for this. And I was going for my regular mammograms every two years. That's what they told me I should do every two years. I, I think that was wrong because I have dense breasts and you have to go not only every year, but you have to have more than just a mammogram. That's a whole other podcast. To make a long story short, I, I went for my routine mammogram. I felt 100%. I didn't think anything was wrong. It wasn't like I felt a lump or anything. And I got a call a few days later. Oh, we found a mass. It was like a mass. Yeah, it's almost like three centimeters. And you better come in for a biopsy and an ultrasound. And you know, biopsy is one of the scariest words in the English language next to cancer, which is uh, really scary. Um, then I went in and then the, the doctor there said, oh, you will also send you for an MRI. And a few days after that, I got a call from my doctor that I had invasive carcinoma, breast cancer, triple positive was the type of breast cancer I have because I also learned there are many different types of breast cancer one can have. And mine wasn't necessarily a good one. However, there is a fat, not that any of them are good. There's a fabulous drug called Herceptin that has saved the lives of thousands and thousands of women. And um, that was something that I also started at the time that I started my chemo. So I went into chemotherapy um, late June of last year, did that, 12 rounds of that. Then I waited till October and had my surgery. A lumpectomy is what I opted for. And then uh, I had 15 rounds of radiation after that. And uh, I was continuing on the Herceptin every three weeks. That's why I recently got a chance to ring that bell again. And uh, I just um, found it to be a journey, as daunting as it was, that was rife with silver linings. I learned so much about myself. I learned so much about people and about humanity. I learned so much about the medical system. I learned so much about uh, the compassion and caring and what it means to just keep going, no matter what just keep going and take life one day at a time and really appreciate everything. Not that I was, an, you know, a grateful person before that, but boy, am I ever grateful now, you know, when you really start thinking that you may only have a limited time left and, you know, what's going to happen and how's this going to work and, and what's going to happen with your kids and, and your partner and your homes and your, just your life. Early on, Ellen, I, I, because I went public with this right from the get-go. Uh, I thought it was my responsibility. I mean, I have a platform. I want to communicate. My life's always been an open book. Very important for me to share my story. So I did. And within a couple of days, my Instagram following doubled. I mean, it went from... Well, you have like 50,000 now. Yeah, it went from 25,000 to 50,000. And now I'm, you know, almost at 55,000. It's like, it's incredible. The number of women and men who have followed me because of my hashtag cancer journey um, footnote. It, it was just so rewarding because the stories that, you know, I started to hear back that came back to me 
were so heart swelling. Um, and then I was so lucky to be treated at Princess Margaret Cancer Center, which is one of the top five in the world. And I chose to look at it as a temple of healing. Um, so Confucius once said, wherever you go, go with all your heart. And that's how I chose to see this journey. Not like, oh, I've got to go to Princess Margaret again today, or, oh, I have to go through this journey that, you know, hopefully it'll get me better, but who knows it. Uh, I just decided, no, I'm in this hook, line and sinker, and I'm going to go through it in the most positive way possible. I'm going to stay in the light. I'm going to put fear on the table uh, and leave it there. I'm a survivor because my parents were survivors. Uh, that's in my DNA. And uh, they certainly taught me a lot. And in a funny kind of way, I think prepared me incredibly for this journey that I've been on. One of the things I think that your dad, often, you like to talk about this quote about his famous motto. I wondered how he's sitting on your shoulder when you're going through all of this. <laughs> it's a great way of putting it. Yeah, definitely sitting on my shoulder, whispering in my ear 24-7, his motto, don't be afraid and never give up. And that's totally what saw him and my mother through the war. Um, they were on the run the whole time, young lovers from the same shtetl. Uh, my father had deserted the Polish army when the war broke out, realizing that the Germans would find out that he was Jewish and just kill him anyway. And, um, and my mother... Um, hid in a bunker with her whole family, uh, nine members of her family suffocated. She was the sole survivor. Their story is incredible. Their book, which was wonderfully published by the Israeli Foundation, is called Joy Runs Deeper. But, uh, you know, they definitely raised me in this way where, listen, you know, back, back in those days, my parents came here after the war. They really had nothing, really nothing. That few things in this big wooden trunk that now is on display at the Pier 21 Museum. And that motto of not being afraid and not giving up, being fearless and tenacious. And they built this wonderful new life for themselves. And then I was born in 1952. How it affected me now, in retrospect, I think, you know what, that was a damn good lesson in life. You know, I what I learned from them, I, I could never have gotten that education anywhere else. And, and they really instilled in me this um, understanding of the way the world works and just so much about humanity and um, how to judge character and uh, how, to, how to be tough and how to be resilient and how to just keep putting one foot in front of the other because there is no option. You mentioned dense breaths, and it's a thing that's affected myself, not personally, but very close to me recently. And we didn't even know about what dense breast is. My doctor never told us, uh, me personally, about it until this happened. And then I became very much involved in learning about it. Most Canadian women do not know about dense breast. Is, is your journey also partly to start educating and lobbying for women to get the same treatment here that the Americans are now saying, yeah, yeah, we, we need to do this earlier, saving lives? Well, there's no question if you know um, that there is a... a an injustice that's being done to women by the fact that a lot of their doctors aren't telling them what to do. A lot of their doctors aren't encouraging them. A lot of their doctors are saying, you know, no, you don't need an ultrasound or you don't need an MRI or you don't, you know, I understand that the medical uh, system is like totally overwhelmed right now. I mean, you can't, you can't even get a GP. I mean, it's just like 
absolutely horrifying. And now with more and more women start demanding these tests, there's going to have to be uh, a great cash injection to just train these technologists how to you know give mammograms and read mammograms and say nothing about the equipment necessary for these tests and you know this is a problem you know a, a big federal problem it's also provincial because every province has different guidelines i'm just learning because and there are different breast densities too like i'm in the c classing and there's you know a is like nothing but there's b and then there's c that's me and then there's d even and it has nothing to do with the size of your breast like a lot of people think oh you've got big boobs you've got dense breasts like, no, 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 it has nothing to do with that. You can have this very small breasts and they can still be dense. I firmly believe now that because I said earlier, my tumor was uh, almost three centimeters and I'd been for a mammogram like two years before, if I would have be gone for an additional ultrasound or MRI, they certainly probably would have found something uh, growing. And I mean, maybe not, you know, maybe it was just that aggressive. You were always energetic before. I know people who are taking cancer treatments and have had lumpectomies and the drugs make them very, very tired. So how do you keep your energy up? Ah, that is the question. And honestly, I wasn't that wiped out even during chemotherapy. I started feeling a little more fatigued and very achy to the point that I feel like I, I aged about 10 years and yeah, I feel a bit stiff in the morning, but then I, you know, just go out for a big long walk with my dog or, you know, just try to keep moving because we've got to just keep moving. And and I usually feel a little bit better. So yes, it has zapped me of some of my energy. I also feel a kind of a brain foggy thing, you know, like, mm, like is my brain really functioning as well as it is? Well, it better be because I, I got a wonderful book deal with Simon & Schuster, not about my cancer journey. But the, well, the book is a memoir. I've already written two memoirs. You know, hey, that's pretty good for a 70-year-old. I still thought I've got a little more uh, <laughs> storytelling in me. But uh, this book is told through the lens of uh, fashion, really. We all have these precious pieces in our lives, pieces of our wardrobe, pieces that we get sentimentally attached to, pe pieces that we hang on to sometimes for no good reason because they don't fit us anymore, but we just can't bear to part with them. And very often these pieces, whether they're pieces in, you know, from our jewelry box or in the back of our closet, th these pieces remind us of people or we remember where we wore them at a certain amount at time. So I've uh, gathered these incredible pieces, or at least I have pictures of myself in the, in the garment. And I'm I'm telling stories about my life and about the incredible people that I've met, um, some famous, some not, but all that kind of taught me something or stories that, that really resonate with hopefully other people where, you know, you'll glean a life lesson. That's all good. And I find if you have something, you, you ask me, how do I keep my energy up? If you have something to focus on, that really helps. You know, some days I feel a bit Oh, I'm feeling tired and lazy. So I go into the kitchen and make a big batch of cookies. You know, just just do something. Get yourself up and, you know, off the couch. And, you know, sometimes, you know, it's great to read. But if you're really tired, you'll probably fall asleep reading. Uh, you know, great to watch all these absorbing, you know, series on Netflix or whatever. But again, you know, that I don't know how far that gets you. But physically, I feel you just got to get up and do stuff and that's what I do. do. Where do you have a humongous closet specially built in any of your homes? Darling, I live in a three-story house in Rosedale besides, you know, sharing another uh, home with my partner here in Northumberland County. Um, and uh, I have a lot of closets in my city house. 
Um, and I've lived in the, that house since uh, 1995. And when my husband left in 1998, only three years after we got the, I guess, you know, again, trying to find the silver linings and these traumatic things that happened, it was like, yay, I've got more closet space. So I just, I have a lot of stuff. I mean, for many years, remember the old days of Hadassah Bazaar? I mean, and everyone got to, you know, they were donating their clothes and that, that was such a great thing. And then for fi almost 15 years, I think I did um, something at Gilda's Club in Toronto, um, called uh, Jeannie Becker opens her heart and closet for you know um, for Gilda's Club, and it was a wonderful sale that we did once a year um, of all my old stuff that I wasn't wearing. And then after a while, I got other media friends to donate their clothes as well, and it was just wonderful. Um, but then because of the pandemic, that stopped. And then Gilda's Club sadly moved out of the gorgeous clubhouse that they had in downtown Toronto where we'd have the sale and they're just all virtual now. So I haven't been donating my clothes to these causes. They're just a lot of them are just sitting there. And I am about to do a, a sale with a, a, a designer resale shop for some of the higher end things. And we're doing it as a fundraiser for breast cancer. You know, maybe one day we'll do some kind of a exhibit. Certainly with the launch of my new book, it would make sense to do that kind of an exhibition. I think that would be great fun. So can you say what one of your favorite pieces is that you're hanging on to and what the story is? Well, I don't want to tell really too many stories now, um, but I, I have uh, everything from the dress that Karl Lagerfeld gifted me with when I was uh, seven months pregnant in, in his couture sto studio on the eve of his couture show to um, the pair of black velvet uh, bell bottoms that I wore at a Madonna interview. Um, and she was wearing the exact same ones. <laughs> so that was like, oh, uh, to the beautiful um, lace dress that was my mom's favorite back in the early 70s that she had her German dressmaker make for her that um, I resurrected about 35 years later and wore to a bar mitzvah myself and danced the horror in it and, and was just overwhelmed with joy thinking about how many horrors that dress had seen and you know because my mother wore that dress a lot to many of these uh these affairs i see that you're wearing on i think it's your left wrist a red is that a is that a kabbalah string a bendala they call it the right the bendala right this is a my daughter joey uh crocheted this little uh string and uh we wear them in our family my girls um and i because my mother very much believed in that as a lot of people from the old country, you know, they didn't want the getoig. And um, even when I was pregnant with both girls, my mother insisted that I tie a little red ribbon on my bra strap, which I wore the entire duration of both pregnancies. So uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I know that well. Um, you mentioned your mom. I read that she was a trained beautician and that your dad opened uh, a factory making footwear in, in Canada. Were they very fashionable people? My mother was incredibly fashionable. I mean, she didn't have the money to spend on designer labels, but uh, she had subscriptions to Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and, you know, religiously poured over uh, those uh, issues all, all the time with my sister and myself. Um, and she uh, got a sewing machine in uh, 1959, the year that we moved to the suburbs. My father gifted her with a uh, a turquoise brother sewing machine. And she made all our clothes. She would go down to Stitsky's, that great fabric store. It used to be down at Bloor and Bathurst. 
and buy wonderful fabrics. And my sister and I would dream up these cool, you know, mod clothes and she'd make them all for us and make gorgeous uh, clothes for herself as well. Um, my dad always said to me, it's very important how you dress because that's the first thing that people see about you and that's how they're going to judge you. He used to take me to a lot of these great wholesale places because he had connections because he was working down in the Shemata business of the garment area with his little slipper factory. It's an issue now, especially of ethics, as well as um, the human rights issues, of course, impacting um, where clothes are made, people making maybe choices on not having fast fashion anymore. Absolutely. Do people in the high fashion industry here that you know of actually do things like that or that isn't uh, doesn't play into their choices? Oh, no. I, I think the biggest conversation in fashion right now is sustainability. I mean, it's on every, you know, even every high fashion uh, house is conscious of it and, and is doing their bit to either try and produce goods that are, um, you know, some of them upcycled or recycled using recycled fabrications. And, you know, every everyone is on that bandwagon now happily. Well, not everyone, but mo- most people. And I think in order to really be um, considered, you know, a, a solid citizen, one, you know, has to somehow partake in that um, exercise. I mean, we absolutely have to change the way that we're uh, making fashion and the way that we're consuming fashion and the way that we're, you know, putting it back out there. I mean, this whole idea of throwing out your clothes into landfill is just horrifying. I mean, the fashion industry and the textile industry is one of the biggest pollutants of the planet and done an incredible amount of damage. And I don't know if it ever will really be able to be fixed in that way. And still, even though so many of these places, I mean, some of these stores, these fast fashion store have initiated these programs where you bring in your old clothes and they'll give you a certain amount of money or they'll give you a coupon. So then you can come back and buy something new from them. Um, And then they take the clothes away and I don't know what they do with them, upcycle them hopefully, or recycle the fabrics. It's heartening to see that a lot of young people, too, are becoming conscious of that. And my daughters, for example, almost only shop vintage. I mean, that's all they're interested in wearing, vintage. Well, if I was your children, first of all, it would be amazing because my dad was a lawyer. So I didn't really need legal advice when I was in high school and needing fashion. But so that wasn't really cool. Later on in life, it was very useful. But not having the cool Howick star jeans or construction boots or painter pants as I grew up and that was what we needed to buy to be cool in high school. I'm sure your kids had the best um, clothes of anyone in their group. Well, only because my kids always just had great taste. It wasn't like I was buying them stuff or they, they, I would ask their and still do often ask their opinion about what, especially my daughter, Joey, who's just got a real, I mean, whoa, I mean, she styles herself. I mean, she's a musician, so she styles herself for her own videos. And just she's just got the most exquisite uh, sense of style. And my daughter, Becky, has got this gorgeous bohemian sense of style, too. She's an artist as well, a filmmaker, an illustrator, and a farmer. Um, So the two girls inspire me to no end. And I learn more about style from them, I think, than I could ever have taught them. Can you sew? I used to make my clothes. I don't, I haven't in years. I do make scarves. I knit a lot. Um, but I um, used to make clothes and had a sewing machine. Actually, when I was living in Newfoundland, I um, made quite a lot of uh, my own clothes. It's been an honor to meet you. Oh, Ellen, so great. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. 
Just this week, the Canadian Health Task Force, which oversees setting the screening guidelines for breast cancer, say they're going to review at what age a woman should be having mammograms and how often, and they're expected to release their decision in the fall. And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Integrity, community, quality, and customer care. Today's listener shout-out goes to Barry Cutler. And that's the CJN Daily for this week. Our producer is Zach Kaufman. Our executive producer is Michael Freeman. Our managing editor is Mark Weisblatt. And the music for the show is by Dove Beck-Levine. And if you have comments on anything you've heard, or you've got ideas for people or stories that we should cover... Write to us at ebesner at the cjn.ca. Thanks for listening.